I give you that international sensation. What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Hello and welcome to Queer Now, the Talk Film Society podcast where we take you on a time-hopping journey through queer cinema, going decade by decade to discover how it has evolved over the years. I am your host, Dave, and I'm here with my co-host, Manish Mother. And Manish, this time we're doing something a little bit different. So we are combining two years because you just can't wait to get through the 30s or can't wait to get to 1939, which we'll talk about in our next episode. But we're going to talk about 1937's Stage Door and 1938's Hotel du Nord, uh, which I hope I am not butchering some French pronunciation, <laughs> uh, but that's what you get when you get Americans covering French movies. So, Manish, um, how excited are you to talk more about Catherine Hepburn and to talk about, I think, our first film that's – is this our first film that's not in English or have we done a non-English film before? No, no, we've done uh, two non-English English movies, um, Pain and Glory and A Portrait Lady on Fire. Oh yes! How could right. you forget yeah. those? The big year, I yeah. because I am so accepting. I don't even think of those as non-English films. <laughs> oh, God, you're like so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. Yes. Okay, we calm down, Bong Joon Ho. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you could just get over that barrier, of... <laughs> then you too oh, can be Lord. welcomed into a great world of cinema, Manish. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right, enough of this nonsense. So are you excited to talk about these movies? Are you more worried because it's like the 1930s and it's harder to access? Where are you standing with these movies? Um, I'm excited for one and not excited for the other. Uh, <laughs> All right, so where do you want to start? Do you want to, start with the, do you want to get the pain out of the way? No, no, let, let's, 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 keep, let's go in chronological order and start with okay. uh, Stage Door. Because I think that there's a little bit more to talk about there, I think. Sure, sure. All right, so Stage Door, uh, as I mentioned, uh, starring Catherine Hepburn, also Ginger Rogers, uh, who we talked about before. And finally, we get a good Catherine Hepburn movie. I love this movie. Like, I know this this show isn't about, like, oh, did you like it? Did you did in your standard review? But, man, I had a great time watching this movie. Like, this, this movie just flew by. Sometimes you get older movies and especially if there are movies like sylvia scarlet that aren't as good particularly like it's kind of a struggle to sit through yeah but yeah. this is like until you know till the end was pretty light fare and you, anytime you have katherine hepburn you know trading barbs you know with with another character like you're gonna do pretty well here so i i just had a great time watching it's a movie i i'm very glad that um i bought because on on streaming because now i can go back and watch it again because i kind of want to and that's definitely maybe not what i expected uh with you know sitting down to watch stage door yeah i really love this movie as well um it's kind of like exactly the kind of movie that i like from this era which is just like kind of brassy women like being funny and smart and like you know career oriented like um i really like I what I love about the 1930s, especially it's like, and the early 40s as well, is that like women are really like um, entering the professional space in movies more than I think they would in like the 40s and 50s, and uh, you know, especially movies about like people who like live in the city and they're like living in apartments. It's like it's like a whole new kind of. It's I mean I guess it's like seeing how we live now. Well, you live in a giant house, but like. You know, seeing people no live in deal. apartments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just, like, seeing people, like, live in, like, shared spaces, like, in the 1930s. Like, it's always fun for me to see how much, it, like, roommate life has changed or hasn't changed, you know, since then. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the thing that surprised me most was not, you know, Catherine Hepburn, because she's wonderful. I mean, yeah. we, we joke about Sylvia Scarlet, but you expect, you expect greatness um, right. from her. Right. And I think people who maybe aren't as acquainted with 1930s, 1940s films think of Ginger Rogers as, quote unquote, just a dancer, like the one who was always with Fred Astaire. Right? Yeah, yeah. But man, she really 
as you know, as Catherine Hepburn's roommate, really holds her own in these really quick, really kind of caustic, funny scenes. And I was really impressed with her. Like maybe more so than Hepburn, maybe because of the expectations of Hepburn always being brassy and great and funny. But the fact that Ginger Rogers like held that space with her and didn't, you know, have you know, circles acted around her was really impressive to me. Yeah, Ginger Rogers is, um, I think, one of those actors for me that I'm continually surprised by her performances because you're right. Like, I think of her as a dancer. And I mean, as I'm going more through these older films, I mean, we, and, um, you're learning more about her. I'm like, oh yeah, like she was an incredible movie star in her own right. And, you know, I, it's my own fault that I kind of placed her with Fred Astaire, (laughs) even though they've only done, you know, they did a few movies together, of course, and they're an iconic dancing couple. But like, I, I tend to forget that like she had a whole career outside of him, just like he had a whole career outside of her. But, um, yeah, she's incredible in this movie. Did he? Did he really? I mean, come on! Did he really do anything good outside of Ginger Rogers? Uh, one of the funny things I found in the, the bare bones research is, you know, this is based on a stage play, uh, but apparently it's like almost nothing like it. Um, one of the writers of the stage play, George S. Kaufman, uh, because everything was changed completely, he joked that the film should be called Screen Door uh, instead of Stage Door. That's pretty funny. Pretty funny. Yeah. Pretty char- I was like, oh yeah, that's that's not bad. That's not bad. Um, so. So um, I was trying to think of this in terms of queerness, and there's kind of two areas where it comes up for me. Uh, One is that, like, the men in this, like, all kind of suck, and they're not really – they're not really objects of desire, more of like a necessary evil, yeah. which I always when I see when I see that happening in terms of gendered performance, I'm like, oh, this is all about the women. And anything that's all about the women has a little bit of queer coding to it. And there's, you know, certainly a fair amount of cattiness because they all live together. They all live in this like essentially what amounts to this apartment building, this like boarding house in New York for like I and this sounds horrible to me, like a boarding house just for actors. Oh my god, like that <laughs> that sounds absolutely terrible. That sounds like the worst setup ever. Yeah. Uh, having been an actor and known a lot of actors, that is a bad, bad idea. And then you have the fact, you know, and it builds through this, and I think we'll talk about this more as a spoiler in 1939, but you end up with this kind of chosen family aspect happening as well, where none of these women are related to each other, but by the end, especially between two or three of them, there are deep, deep connections here between them. And it's pretty impressive, actually, because Terry, our lead character, at the beginning of this, holds herself apart from everyone. Like she, you know, there's a certain amount of like, I'm a little, I'm better than this. Like she was raised rich and, you know, I'm going to be a big actor. I don't need to spend time with you. You know, I have all my, you know, all my suitcases, all my clothes, blah, blah, blah. But as the film goes, it builds this relationship, not only between a her and Jean played by Ginger Rogers, um, but this, you know, uh, but Kay played Andrea Leeds, who, you know, sadly commits suicide at the end of this film. The connection between those three never seems forced and is surprisingly natural for a movie that is this theatrical. Yeah, I um, I totally agree with you. Um, I felt like this um, there. Yeah, I definitely felt like there was more it, it didn't feel as like stagey or um the, that I, I do want to talk to you a lot about this chosen family it's something that comes up a lot um mm-hmm. you know you uh that you brought up because like it comes up a lot in queer movies obviously because i think it's such a like uh it's part of you know it's part of growing up i guess but like mm-hmm. especially in this movie where you have all these uh actors who are um uh, like on their own and they're, you know, finding their careers and like um, they're trying to make their way in this profession and try and just like, they're not, they don't have that like parental support. And um, I think it's so, uh, it's so well done in this movie too, because the, um, the, like you're mentioning like, like the cattiness and stuff, like it just feels so, um, like it feels lived in. These uh, these characters all feel mm-hmm. so um, like like they have a relationship with each other beyond the screen, you know. Like like 
outside of the movie, right? Like they have like their rivalries and their friendships and their allegiances to each other and stuff. And so I thought, yeah, just like this chosen family that they have, it's like it's it's not this like utopia where everyone gets along, but like they bicker and stuff, just like siblings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think, you know, it's I think Edra Leeds is particularly impressive because she yeah. doesn't get to play the brassy woman like Catherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers do. She is much more internal and struggling and trying to get where she wants to go, but in but in a kind way. Like she's not willing she's not willing to cut people to get where she needs to be. Um, whether she's the best actress for the yeah. part or not, you know, she's she wants to do things the right way. And it's it's a very it's a very impactful performance, especially for being so stereotypically dramatic in, you know, what amounts to, you know, mostly a comedy. Like there's some there's some dark moments in yeah. this movie and yeah. some dramatic moments, but this is this is a comedy that's that's supposed to show off Catherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers. But anytime Andrea Leeds is on screen, man, I am I am watching her. Um, and that's pretty impressive given who she's going up against. Yeah, she was so impressive. And I'm not that familiar with her work. I'm sure I've seen her in films, but um, she, yeah, and like, she kind of had the character where it's like she doesn't get to, as you're saying, be that like brassy, like, it's kind of a difficult character and like less colorful, I guess, as, you know, Ginger Rogers and Captain Hunter, they're playing to their personas, you know, they're playing to yes. their strengths as movie stars. And Angela Lee's has to then like create that without the audience having any perception of her beforehand. Or at least, I mean, I guess I, you know, I don't know how famous she was back then, but to me, I, I don't think I've seen her. I don't remember seeing her in anything. So she, she holds her own as she's like the heart of the movie, right? Like she's the, yeah, like she's the most sympathetic one. She's the one that we, in some ways, like root for the most, just because she's so, mm-hmm. like she has that like you know lost lamb thing going for her, which is so compelling. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and I just I just looked her up, so it's not surprising if you haven't seen her in other things because she retired from acting following getting married in 1939, just two years after Stage Door came out. Um, and she started acting in 1933, and, and like uh, Stage Door was kind of her big break, so she was really only around for like you know four or five years as far as Hollywood goes, and yeah. then decided she would be you know happier being married and becoming a successful horse breeder of all things. So, oh, I mean, good for her. I was going to say, I bet her yeah. husband made her stay home. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. But you're right; she does have that. She does have that lost lamb thing, but she also has like true emotion it's not just like oh poor little thing yeah she's not like naive she had a calling and you root for her so when one of your lead characters kind of betrays her it's pretty hurtful and it takes a little bit for us to get back on terry's side i think at least it did for me uh what about you like after she kind of takes her role and kind of decides to you know go on stage and perform that instead of helping her friend what did you think of that I, that kind of yeah, twist in the plot i almost couldn't believe that it was happening because like right. it, i feel like in old movies maybe it's such a cliche but like i feel like in old movies like main characters like the main stars don't ever do things like that and then without it becoming right. totally villainous like i don't think of it as like i'm sure people are like oh she's such a villain she's such a bitch whatever but like I don't think of it that way. I think it's just like a just like nuanced thing of like, you know, at the end of the day, these people might all be friends, but they also like have their careers to focus on. And they kind of like, you can see the thought process of being like, I got to do what's right for me, you know? And um, I don't, it's, I don't know if I sympathize with that or understand it, but I can empathize with it and I can, you know, put myself in that position. But I definitely thought that it was a, I thought it was a very interesting betrayal because it was from someone that is nominally the hero of the film and right. nominally at least the, like, you know, the audience identifying character. Certainly the lead. Yeah, it's certainly, yeah, exactly. It's certainly the lead, right. So it was fascinating and I was, like, taken aback by how, um, how it was happening and also, like, how much the film, like, took 
took care to like experience that it didn't just brush over it or gloss over it or explain it away like as you were saying it takes a while to you know accept it and forgive it and i think the movie earns that by treating it as something real yeah it's very interesting because as i was watching i definitely expected her not to go on yeah um, right and you know especially after you know finds out that Kate killed herself like it is pretty extreme and pretty brutal but instead they have her choose to go on and then afterwards dedicate the performance to her who should have been there instead and then after that our two lead characters are reconciled they they you know she forgives her for what she did and i was wondering like was it enough for you? Did you find that forgiveness convincing? It's one thing for us as an audience to forgive Catherine fucking Hepburn because she's Catherine Hepburn. But it's another thing for this woman who loved her friend who died because of what happened here. Like, yes, she made her choice to commit suicide, but it happened because this part was stolen from her, this thing she felt like she was born to do, and now she felt like she didn't have anything else to live for. So was that enough for you, or do you feel like they needed to do more? I mean, I think it was... I don't know. I mean, it's like... It was... uh, I don't know. You know, when you put it like that, I think... I, um, like, yeah, I don't know. That's a really hard question now that, now that it's been phrased to me in that way and I have to, like, really think about it. I want to say yes, but I also, like, maybe not. But then also, like, the, the funny thing about this movie, well, not the funny thing, but, like, you know, a lot of this stems from sort of, stems from the patriarchal, um, Happenings, you know, behind the scenes. I mean, not behind the scenes of the film, but like out, you know, but like, you know, all the machinations that are happening, um, you know, because I think that, um, you know, there's like uh, the way that the film goes that like, uh, it's not like the betrayal isn't really, it's like, um, I'm having trouble remembering the exact part of the plot, so if you'll remind me, because I, I did watch this a little while ago, but um, isn't it that, like, Catherine Hepburn gets the role because of, like, her father? It's this nepotism, yeah. The nepotism, her father right. secretly... Her father secretly finances the play as right. long as she can be the lead right. because he is hoping she will fail and come home. Yeah, okay, so there's, like, so many things there I want to talk about. Right, exactly. Um, is it, like, you know, um, you know, nepotism is, is, I think, a patriarchal concept, right? And it's all about, you know, preserving, um, preserving the people on the top to be at the top and not letting someone like Andrea Leeds get into, you know, into a... a a rising position. And um, so at some point, Catherine Hepburn, you know, as much as she is benefiting from this, she also doesn't really know exactly what's happening behind the scenes as it's happening. So she doesn't, you know, like, I mean, you know, um, it's like, it's, I'm almost having a hard time being like, you know, I don't forgive her because, you know, she's not putting these things in motion, right? Like, or am I just like reading this differently than you are? No, no, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, she, you know, it's not that she's a victim in this. I mean, she's not because she's benefiting from it, but she's also benefiting from a system that isn't like, that isn't really looking out for her. Like, she doesn't get the part because her dad believes in her and wants her to succeed. Right. Her dad wants her to fail. <laughs> And um, wants her then to be humiliated and to then, um, you know, go back and play, you know, housewife for, you know, a future husband or whatever. So it's like she's not quite the backstabber. I mean, she like she's not really the backstabber that like Eve is and all about Eve, you know, because there is still this element that like she's also a pawn in this game where she's not she's not the main player of this game. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I asked yeah. you, was it enough? Because I'm uncomfortable with my own reaction to it. Because yeah. I feel like I feel like it shouldn't be enough, but it yeah. is. Um, and yeah. I think honestly, it's because of Catherine Hepburn's curtain call. Yeah, like yeah. when she dedicates that to her friend. Like on its surface, you know, you just if you just read the script, I'd be like, that's not enough. But the the heartfelt way that she yeah. gives that speech is enough, and I, you know, putting myself, you know, in the in in Jean's shoes in that moment, I would be like, I would, I would forgive her too. She is actually feeling it, and I think they set it up very well in the fact that before this performance, you know, everyone hates her as an actress, including the director, the writers, the other actors. Like she is wooden in that right. performance. And it's almost as if she's inhabited by the spirit of her friend to give this performance of a lifetime. Or, and so yeah, her, yeah. her dedicating to it feels real and feels right and feels enough. And that, you know, that says everything you need to know about Katherine Hepburn's performance. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I, I think you're you're right in that, like, reading on the page, it, doesn't, it just feels like, okay, yeah, she gave this monologue and, like, kind of like, you know, reminds me of like a Facebook post, you know, that's like, right, right. doesn't do anything to solve any problems, but you know, it's we're like just a, going to... Uh, a notes apology. On right. Like, <laughs> right. Very, exactly. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, a notes apology that's really well done can be very effective. And, you Absolutely. know, also remember that like, what what like what is enough right like what more can she do right. she can't you know I mean, a woman is dead like she can't like she can't bring she can't, bring, bring, it she can't bring it back right and so the best she can do is acknowledge her own part in the tragedy and you know do the performance in her friend's honor and i think forgiveness you know in a lot of ways forgiveness for me it's not just about like erasing the bad feelings but also making a commitment towards you know moving past it so you know maybe maybe if ginger rogers wanted to she could have been like yeah not enough you know right um you this is all the bad stuff that you did but also like what's really the point in that you know right right and i also think it helps that at the end of the film you know, Terry doesn't go off to, you know, live in a big house and a mansion yeah. that her father paid for. She continues to live at the Footlights Club. Yeah. Uh, and it's nice. And I think um, that like the, the ending of the film is essentially like a new person comes to look for a room and the process continues. And I think we hope that Terry will be more welcoming and more caring yeah. and more connected now that she has kind of gone through something terrible. Like, yes, she had this great success, but she also lost like, you know, probably, probably the only person who could have been a true friend uh, in that, in that yeah. boarding house. Like yeah. everyone else is a little catty and a little over the top and a little competitive. Kay is like the one genuine person there. Right. Um, and that's the person that they lost. So the fact that she continues that process, I think helps the way the film ends as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you think there's anything we're missing as far as like queer aspects uh, that we haven't touched on? No, I think, you know, I was reading this article um, about how um, the Ginger Rogers and Catherine Hepburn are like framed as like screwball co-stars, like, you know, like a Cary hmm. Grant, you know, Irene Dunn type movie. Yeah, and, it would be very flirtatious. Yeah, they're flirtatious like and like pairing. the fact that there really isn't a romantic male lead that all these men are just, you know, um they're just like the uh, like actors of um, patriarchal, you know, machinations. And that, most of like, them are goops. Like yeah, aside from goops, the guy who yeah. is running the show, like they're all chuckleheads. Right, like, right. Just, you can't take them as serious leads in any way. So, like, you think about like how like this movie like is pretty much driven by women and this relationship with women. But I do want to talk to you about like you know, how easy it is for for queerness to be read in movies where, like, people of the same gender are just, like, interacting with each other. And we see this right. with men, too, where it's, like, um, you know, I mean, we were talking off mic about, like, First Cow and how much like, people are like, oh, my God, it's a gay love story, when there's no romance in that movie at all. It's just two men, like, working together and not, like, kid- like hitting each other. 
and um, I'm like, I don't, I don't, I, I really am like wondering, is there, are we just so like that desperate for queerness that like we're going to read it? Because I go back and forth because I'm like, I, I want male friendships or female friendships to be celebrated beyond adding any queer subtext to it because like, you know, I think that's important as well. But also, like, we do live in a society where, like, most movies are about straight people. So, like, we should be able to assign any kind of queer narrative as we can because, like, sometimes we're starved for it, (laughs) you know. So I just want to get your take on that because I feel like it does apply in this movie. There's really no romance between the women, but, you know, there's articles, my articles about, like, the queerness of this film. (laughs) Yeah, I think you bring up uh, a lot of interesting points. Yeah. Um, Especially like I, you know, the male friendship where they're not beating the crap out of each other, like anything that's not Hobbs and Shaw uh, will immediately get read as a as a gay story. Actually, uh, even even now, even stuff like Hobbs and that, Shaw gets yeah, queer reading. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that's probably gayer yeah. than First Cow. So yeah. I, I think that's <laughs> fine. Um, but I, I think we also like we spend a lot of time on this show, especially the last couple months or so in talking about the 1930s yeah. about putting things in their correct context. And if you put things in the context of the 30s, you didn't have a lot of movies like this where there wasn't a male lead. Usually it's like, you know, it's, you know, it happened one night. You know, you have a male lead and a female lead. And like, honestly, if you switch the dialogue uh, between it happened one night and the dialogue in this movie between Catherine Hepburn and and Ginger Rogers and Stage Door – yeah. There's not that much of a difference. Right, right. Like it is flirtatious. It is prodding. It is back and forth. It is fun. And it has, you know, a certain like sex appeal to it. So is there anything overtly queer in this? Absolutely not. But seeing two strong, brathy women go back and forth like this feels queer to me. Um, and we kind of talked about this, like sometimes, especially as you go back in time, there's going to be things that are hard to explain, but like it's kind of like, you know, we talked about it's the difference between, you know, um, erotica and pornography. Like I know it when I see it. Yeah. And it's the yeah. same thing with like queer subtext where it's like there is something going on here. And the way that Ginger Rogers kind of flips out on her, like before the suicide, before all that dark stuff, the way she flips out on her when she realizes she is kind of swooped in and taken away her sugar daddy, essentially. Sure, it is posed as like, he, she stole my man, but it's not really posed that way. It's more no. like, she stole my opportunity and I'm jealous of her. And there's a certain sexuality to that moment like the even the way katherine hepburn poses herself as ginger rogers walks in the door it's certainly not for you know for the man <laughs> it's not right, for his pleasure right. in that moment it's for her to be seen by ginger rogers in that moment so for me there's enough there to draw those parallels uh just in the style that it's done in like if you like we talked about if you replace katherine hepburn or ginger rogers with Cary grant this is a love story. Yeah, yeah. It, it ends with the two of them together, and there's almost no difference. I really want to know, like, what queer women of the era thought of this movie. Like, were the lesbians, like, flocking to see it, you know? Right. Um, but they were. Maybe they were, right. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, I feel like my... I guess, like, my my thing is, like, you know, we all these articles I've been reading about the stage door, like, it comes to people in the 2010s or the 2000s or even the sure. 90s. But, like, I want to know, like, what, like, if the queerness was evident or, like, I, I don't know, because I don't want to sound condescending, but, like, was it something that was being talked about and not just something that's become academic from, you know, from the modern perspective? You know what I mean? I think I think honestly, anything with Katherine Hepburn uh, was probably being talked about in queer circles. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. She sure. had that, you know, not only brassy, but in a lot of her films, you know, like close to quote unquote cross dressing, right, you know, right, wearing slacks, being the one in power. Like even you know, even in romances with men, like she was in their face and knew what she wanted, and I think that that gets translated as queer then and now. All right, so let's uh, let's take a look at our test before we move on to Hotel du Nord. Um, so uh, I think this one's going to be a little bit tougher than our last episode on Dracula's Daughter. So does this film contain a character that is identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual, and or trans? No, I don't think so. 
No, absolutely not. It doesn't yeah. even meet the most basic um, of these three. Like it just, you know, it's not there. It's all coded. It's all underneath the surface. And no, this does not pass the Russo test. Um, but what about what you learned from this movie? What do you what do you walk away with stage door? I think a lot of what you just said um, is something that I really want to chew on and think about. Um and uh, especially talking like, you know, um, yeah, especially like talking about like this movie's um, queerness and, and its framing and how like how much you can just yeah replace one of the two actresses with, you know, a male lead and it becomes a, a you know, a screwball farce. And um, it's really something to think about because um, I I really am... You know, I mean, we'll we'll get to this, but I kind of struggle with like reading queerness in these older movies, just because like I don't know, maybe like lately I've been maybe because we're watching these in like quick succession, and I'm like starved for like actual queer content and not like stretching and not not like imagining like am I imagining this or am I like or not me personally, but like are we imagining this or is this like intentional? Because like. I want to see, like, intent, like, I guess I'm just excited to get to the 2000s because I'm like, I want to see intentionality in this. I want to see, like, actual content and not be, like, feeling, not feeling like I am, like, as I was saying with Dracula's daughter, like, not reading against what is being presented to me. And I think Stage Mm -hmm. Door gets to this better because I think it's better representation, at least. It's not, like, harmful. but like um, I'm also like yeah but like I want to see a kiss or I want to see like any kind of like outward um, proclamation which I know we're not going to get in the 1930s but um, but I think you you're putting a lot of this into perspective for me as well and kind of re-centering me to what we're talking about this podcast and not complaining about what I want to see you know you big baby, stop <laughs> crying. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, I've learned uh, in this episode that Catherine Hepburn actually was a good actress. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know Catherine Hepburn is great. Uh, but yeah, I think you covered a lot of it. Um, it is, it can be very frustrating to watch queer coded films um, of this era, but it is also. It's also, in a way, kind of wonderful to see how it has grown and to see the comparisons between not only films of the time, but the way we make these films now. Um, I think, you know, I think when you watch this, I think you you posted uh, on Twitter that that uh, that gif of uh uh, little women uh, are just saying women, um, <laughs> which is which is so interesting because I was like watching this and I kind of thought of that movie in particular um, yeah. and how different it is in terms of like the way women interact. And even though that movie is certainly a period piece, it's also a very modern interpretation of that period piece. So we yeah. get. You know, we get kind of all angles here. So, yeah, this was I mean, it helps that this was just in general a very enjoyable movie. Yeah. But also enjoyable the sense of looking at this with a more queer lens. All right. So now we come to Venetia's favorite, uh, his favorite movie that we've covered uh, (laughs) on Queer Now, (laughs) um, Hotel du Nord. And I mentioned that because, you know, a little behind the scenes before we recorded, he messaged me and said, I'm looking forward to hearing how this is queer in any way. And my response was, yeah, me too. Because <laughs> uh, I definitely... Who picked this movie? Was this me or was this you? It's all you, David. It's all God you. God damn it. What an idiot. Um, I think that, I think this is another victim of the, uh, the Wikipedia uh, gay and lesbian films. Maybe they just yeah. think anything French is automatically gay or anything with a gay director. I was even watching this movie from that lens of being like, you know, are these guys more feminine, you know, or effeminate? You know, like, what is the... One guy is very clean. They make a plot point of it. Uh, There you go. (laughs) He's, what would they call it? Fastidious? (laughs) Like, that is... (laughs) That's queer-coded, right? Yeah, Uh, yeah. Yeah. But Hotel du Nord... An interesting film in a lot of ways. I was kind of amazed at how far back the idea of like 
um, posing a movie in a place where people come in and out and kind of we tell their stories as they go yeah. in and out. Like this has been this has been going on forever, apparently. And I'm trying to think what was the movie that did this that like won the Oscar? Uh, Greta Garbo was in it. Um, oh, damn, um, I cannot uh, Grand Hotel. Yeah, Grand Hotel yeah. kind of does the same thing. Maybe a little lighter in tone uh, than <laughs> Hotel du Nord is. I mean, we have, you know, basically two of our lead characters, like, have a murder-suicide. Suicide. <laughs> yeah. uh, this was the only thing that I could, and I I almost don't want to get into this, but this is the only part that I could see as queer-coded because many queer love stories end in tragedy in this way of, like, we can't live in this world together, so we might as well die in love and end this. That was the piece to me that I was holding on to. And that's like in the very beginning of the movie, like it's within like probably the first 20, 30 minutes. Um, so I kept waiting for more gay stuff and there's nothing in it other than that, that for me at least, uh, like showed as queer coded. Yeah. Yeah. I think I really am like, I liked the movie. I thought it was really well made and yeah. very interestingly directed. Um, but I was like, I feel like I need to watch it again because I felt like I was so distracted by waiting for the queerness. <laughs> and, um, because, well, what, you know, I, I was searching and searching for any criticism of this movie. Not just queerness, but just anyone talking about this movie. And um, I really couldn't find much of anything on it. And partially because, like, I think this is a real hotel. So mm-hmm. everything that I was researching was about that hotel and not about the movie. Um, I even right, searched right. like Hotel du Nord gay, and it was all about like gay people visit that gay Paris. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not what I was looking for. That's but you know, um, I, I I actually am thinking about like breaking the podcast a little because like. I think what I think what's kind of an annoying to me is like when people talk about queer movies like there's not really a lot to of like talking outside of the box in terms of categorization because like as we were talking about Katherine Hepburn just now I was looking I was like looking at um, her career and bringing a baby is a 1938 movie. And I think that movie is so much more queer than Hotel du Nord is. And it didn't even come up in our research about queer movies of the era mm. because it's anomaly, a straight romantic comedy. And I was just like, just thinking like Hotel du Nord, I don't know why. I mean, I, I think the reason why it shows up in on that Wikipedia page is because its director is gay. Um, right. And has been, and has put in like queer themes in his movies in the forties and fifties, but I'm like I don't understand how Jose Dunor gets caught up in that because there's really nothing queer about this movie except for your your interpretation, which is a stretch. I'm sorry, but it is. <laughs> no, it is 100. percent It is. But a very okay. a very um a, you know I'm glad that you went there because even I was just like I don't know what to talk about with this movie, but <laughs> um. So I was just thinking, like, about, like, how much, like, you know, um, like, I think when things get categorized, like, there's really no creativity of, like, hey, let's think about this in a new way. Um, Like, Bringing Up Baby, which I would consider a very queer movie. We talked a little bit about it when we talked about Sylvia Scarlet. Um, And, uh, but, yeah, I was just, like, I don't. Yeah, I don't really have a point. I'm just like, it's just interesting to think about, like, you know, we don't really, I mean, like, whatever you look at queer movies on, like, the streaming platforms, like, there's a queer section, but then there are movies that have different, like, um, different, like, major categories, or major genres, right? And then, like, Mm -hmm. those, those get kind of lost, you know, like, a comedy will be put in comedy, not in queer, not in the queer section. So, it's like, I don't know. It's just like it's a little frustrating, I guess, because then we're not like yeah. we're, we missed. I think like the opportunity to talk about bringing a baby because like it just didn't even come up in our research. Um, Look, how many yeah. Catherine Hepburn movies do you want to talk about? Jeez, <laughs> she was a queer fun. icon of the time. Okay, 
<laughs> I mean, I think she's probably still a queer icon. Yeah. How gay of you to just be like, two Catherine Hepburn movies, <laughs> not good enough. I need to watch yeah. one yeah. more. No, but I, I think you also bring up an interesting point that there are certain shortcuts made yeah. when people create lists like this. Right. Um, where it's like, oh, it's a gay movie because there's a gay director. Like, not really. I mean, that's like saying every Spike Lee movie is a black movie. 25th yeah. Hour is not a black movie necessarily there's right. nothing about it like there's there's things about it that are very spike lee um but i don't think there's anything about it that you're like oh there's no way a non-black filmmaker could make this just like this movie i wouldn't say there's there's no way a non-gay filmmaker could make this yeah. absolutely not like and if anything it is like i was stunned at you know the beauty of not only the people in this film because good lord yeah. but also just the you know just the sights and the you know the hotel itself and the care that's taken in the kind of meticulousness of these shots like it's absolutely stunning and beautiful but there's nothing about it that separates it as a gay movie unless you want to talk about you know lovers missing each other right and feeling like they can't be together right, and right. the world keeping them apart or their own self-hatred keeping them apart um because you know, the character, I think it's Pierre, who is with Renee in the very beginning, you know, can't can't manage to do it. And he runs um, and then beats himself up about this so much that even though she has forgiven him, he refuses to forgive himself. And I think there's a certain there's a certain queerness in that. I think there's a a lot of gay love stories that either begin or end with characters saying like, no, I can't do this. I can't be this. This is wrong. And them trying to fight against it and running away from it, whether it be running away in terms of leaving the country or yeah. going in ill-advised marriage. Like, and again, these are also stretches, but I can see. I was going to say, you're being, you're being more generous now than I've ever have known you to be <laughs> in my entire life. <laughs> I'm trying here. I'm trying. So there's like a little bit there, but this is just, I mean, this sounds trite to say, but this is just a good movie. Yeah. yeah. Like your themes be damned. There's actually not much here and a little behind the scenes. I think that's why we chose to combine this with another year that was clearly a queer movie. Whereas this one is like, eh, I mean, it's a good movie. It's available on Criterion channel. I'm glad I watched it. Me too, and yeah. I'm kind of interested to watch more of this director's films. Um, after I've seen this, maybe ones that are more queer. They, I think you had told me off mic that um, some of his other films involve like uh, his his gay lover. So there's like lots of there's lots of material there, just not in 1938. Yeah, I mean, like you know, when we were talking about earlier, you know, Spike Lee and stuff like that, like does because like we, there are directors working now who are queer who make movies that aren't like don't have queer content, but they are coded queer you know i'm thinking about like like a joel schumacher or luca guadagnino like you know like suspiria isn't a gay movie you know mm -hmm. on its face but it is very campy or i mean it's very gay both for queer men and queer women and mm -hmm. um but it's like does like i guess the question is like does the filmmaker's orientation you know does that make a movie queer just by because, like you know, like Joel Schumacher, like I mean, his Batman movies, and you know, they're not like there's no gay content in them, but they're like so gay, <laughs> you know. Yes, yeah. I think so. Here's what I think about that, and I think it's a really interesting question. Um, if you know that a filmmaker is queer, I think you have to look closer at it than you would. Um, otherwise, especially during this time, like yeah. if you told me if I didn't know Joel Schumacher was gay and how could you not? But if you didn't uh, and you just saw some Batman movie, you wouldn't automatically be like, oh, well, this is a gay movie. But if you look a little closer, such if you look at, you know, like Uma Thurman's performance right, right. in one of those movies, I think you're going to see it. But I don't think in this case, I don't think there's big things that we're missing. No. I think anything that could be quoted coded as queer is so hidden and so structured and such a stretch that we're really working to have to do it. So, uh, but I think if, you know, if I were to watch other of this director's movies, I would still be looking for queer coded things yeah. because especially during this time, and 
this is less maybe less true for French films than it is for American films. Like if I was watching an American filmmaker like, say, James Whale, right? We know that James Whale was gay. I would be looking for those themes in his movies because he wasn't allowed to express them directly right, at this right. time in cinema history. So you do have to look a little closer. But just because a movie is made by a gay filmmaker does not mean there's queer coding in it. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because like I mean, you also think about someone like Cary Grant or Rock Hudson or um, right, you know, any of these, you know, queer people in this era. Like, you can easily read a lot of Cary Grant's performances as as queer coded, just because he often does the like a fem like he'll put, like his characters might be like kind of like Playboy or whatever, but like it's he'll very, put on the role of fussy. like yeah, fussy, right? <laughs> uh, like I just watched him in this two movies with Mae West. And, like, again, it's, oh, like, uh-huh. you know, she's a walking gay icon, you know? She's such a drag... She's basically yes. a drag queen, and it's, like, yeah, of course it's, like, right. fussy guy is obsessed with this drag queen. <laughs> right. And was it, um, was it his, like, first role in a Mae West movie? Well, I was, I was reading about this, actually. She, that's what she claims, and he has claimed that... Or he claimed that he was doing movies before, but that... Definitely his breakthrough was with her, but I think he was working beforehand. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the bisexual king owes his career to a drag queen. <laughs> that, fits, that fits just about right. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I had a question, like, as I was watching this movie. So, you know, you have this, like, very stereotypical like gorgeous pairing of Renee and Pierre, like just stunningly good looking people. You're like, yeah. of course they're in love. They match each other, especially for this time in French cinema that works really well. But when, you know, that falls apart um, and she ends up, you know, hooking up with, you know, kind of the villain, I guess uh, in this movie, did those sequences work for you? Like, do you, are you swept along with that? Cause there is certainly a change in that character. He starts telling the truth about who he is and he starts smiling a lot more, or are you just waiting for her to work her way back to Pierre? I was swept up in it a little um, because it felt like her innocence and her simplicity was, as you're saying, having an effect on him. And mm-hmm. I was also, you know, being like, I actually don't know how this romance is going to play out. You know, I was right. thinking like, I mean, this is this is a French movie outside the Hollywood system, so like, you know, I, I think even now, you, you know, international movies, you know, they play by different rules and they don't have mm-hmm. to, you know, reaffirm the patriarchy in some ways. And I think that was like, oh, I don't understand if like. You know, I was like, I'm just curious to see where this goes. I didn't really, I didn't think that it would be setting her up to go back to her original lover, but I didn't think that was impossible either. I was just kind of like, I was believing that he was becoming a better person for her because she was so beautiful and simple and innocent and naive. Not naive, but like just, yeah, simple. Pure. Pure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I definitely thought it was going to end much more horrifically than it did, so that was kind (laughs) of a nice surprise. Yeah. Like, when he comes back, I'm like, oh, he's going to fucking kill them both. I don't need this in my life. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And at this point, I was sure that you chose this movie. I was like, Manish, why? Why did you choose this movie? But apparently it's my fault, which is fine. Most things are. That's not a problem. Yeah. I mean, this seems mainly academic at this point, um, but does this film contain a character that is identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual, or trans? Yes, all of them. <laughs> all of them, yes. Okay. Uh, no, uh, I no. Think yeah. The clear answer is no. So actually, neither of our movies from 1937 or 1938 passed the Russo test, and yet... One of them feels like a queer movie, and one of them doesn't. Um, So just like with the Bechdel test, you can't narrow a feminist film down to, like, does it pass this? Yeah. Um, And you can't narrow a queer film down to does it pass the Russo test? So is there anything you learned um, from watching Hotel du Nord? Um, Well, like, would you call this movie noir? like it's before the noir mm. movement right or at least like at it's the got, very beginning some of that in there because like sure. it feels like the like to, to me yeah seeing sort of the formation of the film noir movement was very fascinating because there's so many elements of noir in this film like the sort of the fatalism or like the nihilism is somewhat present there and this you know just this element of like 
romance and crime and, you know, bad guys and good guys. You know, like, I don't mean, like, bad guys like villains, but just, like, men who are just, like, you know, they're they're bad. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think it's like the way was, Renee is treated throughout yeah. by all the male characters before they fall in love with her is pretty, right. you know... Not great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah I mean, I just seeing this, more. like, the sort of the infancy of the noir movement and how so many of its um, uh, visual aesthetics were right. being talked about even before its heyday in the 1940s. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, this has nothing to do with queerness or, you know, a little to do with the movie, but I think what it taught me is, like, there's there's just so much great French film that you can't just like narrow it down to like a couple directors or like, I had, I gotta be honest. Like I had never heard the name of this director before watching this movie. I had no idea who he was. And this is like someone new now for me that I'm like, Oh, I need to watch more of their work. Like you can't just narrow it down to, you know, like, well, I watched three movies from the French new wave. So I'm good now. Like it's, you know, like every culture it is varied and has a lot of work that you can see that you might not that you might not be able to check out. So it made me glad that like yeah. you, know, you you know you looked it up. You're like, hey, it's on the Criterion Channel. Go go check this out. So it was like really <laughs> easy for me to access. Yeah, which is nice because a lot of times with you know with uh, non English speaking films, you the access is a little bit harder. harder so this yeah. is why like not to like you know pimp out the Criterion Channel, but this is why having a variety of these streaming Corporate services shows. available are great. That's right. That's me. Sponsor me. Uh, send me all your movies, Criterion Channel, so I yeah, stop right. spending money on them that Seriously. I do not have. Uh, I was so going to yeah. say that um, even the even the description of this movie is like, this movie is not as famous as the other right, film right, by yeah, the director. It's not as famous as his other two movies. I was like, well, that's kind of mean. <laughs> like, it's like, Damn, girl. But even if you look at, uh, if you look at IMDb, it, it does sound very uppity in French. It says, on the, on the meandering, I won't try to pronounce that at the Parisian Hotel du Nord a nearly fatal gunshot separates a dejected young couple but amid a sad but beautiful panorama of lively characters oh, love has final say can life be a fairy tale like it is very <laughs> it's a lot uh, but like that still does kind of describe the movie yeah, like, that description was, is know, more gay than the movie itself <laughs> <laughs> yes 100% alright uh, so that is it for our episode on 1937 and 1938 but the next episode is going to be like if you're annoyed because like there wasn't a lot of queer content in that second movie, fear not because so the next excited. movie we're doing is The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. So that is sure, you know, Friends of Dorothy and all that. We will talk all about that in our next episode. Uh, but in the meantime, Anish, where can they find our show on Twitter and you on social media? Yeah, you can follow the podcast at Queer Not Pod and follow me on Twitter at the Manish eighty nine. That's T H E M A N I S H eight nine. And uh, you can find both of us at TalkFilmSociety.com. Yes, uh, and, you know, Manish also uh, does a podcast there called It Pod to Be You, which you should check out, which is all about romantic comedies. Um, you can find me at Darn That Dave and my other podcast, Offscreen Death, at Offscreen Death. And we'll talk to you about Wizard of Oz. And I love-